1888 Podcast Network. I'm John Barrett Ingalls, and this is The How, The Why. Presented by 1888. Every week we connect with artists, authors, and innovators in the world of publishing and literature to discuss their creative process and creative purpose and explore the evolution of the industry. 1888 serves as a regional catalyst for the preservation, presentation, and promotion of cultural heritage and literary arts. Let's get connected. This episode was recorded live at 1888 Center by Bruce Sessions Live. This is the How, the Why podcast live at the 1888 Center, and today it is my pleasure to have Martin J. Smith join us. Everybody, please welcome Martin J. Smith. Um, Martin is an author, uh, a teacher, an editor, uh, a journalist and uh, can't hold a job is basically <laughs> <laughs> or you need every job um, and, and what I love to do in these conversations is is to find out the beginnings so I, I love to find out where the passion started from where the love of writing started from and storytelling um, so if you, you wouldn't mind like talking or telling us a story of uh, one of the first times where where the language and and story art came into your life. I can pretty much tell you the exact moment. So yeah, there is a story there. Um, I went to Penn State University along with my wife Judy, and in the 1970s, I was one of those post Watergate era journalists who were drawn into that line of work um, uh, by the idea that journalists could be heroes. I thought that was a kind of yeah, I'd, I'd like to be a hero. That'd be cool. Um, and I enrolled in Penn State. When I enrolled in Penn State, I was actually a political science major. And I took one, one or two semesters of classes with political science. And um, they were using words like paradigm and dichotomy and things that I, I just had to rush home and look up. You know, I, I had no idea what they were talking about. And it bored me to tears. Um, and I kind of stumbled around for about a year after that, trying to figure out, okay, that's, I thought that's what I wanted to do, but I, that's not what I want to do. Uh, and I was always writing, and so I, I must have written a, uh, a little essay or something, and I took it into the offices of the Daily Collegian at Penn State, which was the daily student-run newspaper there. And, you know, just said, you know, would you be interested in publishing this? And they said yes. They read it and, and bought it, and I thought, that's cool. Um, I think they actually paid me $5 for it. Um, but more importantly was I stumbled into a, a newspaper newsroom for the very first time in my life. Um, and there, you know, back then, you know, you remember the old wire machines that actually spewed out news, newsprint, you know, on these reams of paper and they would, you know, chatter all day long yep, and spew yep. this stuff mm -hmm. out into the newsroom and people would go over and rip something off it and go, oh my God, there's something going on in Bulgaria. We have to, you know, and it was exciting. It was, you know, you felt very connected to the world. Um, you know, people were disappearing into the dark room and doing God knows what and, 
Um, it was just an environment uh, arguing politics. You know, the, it was this round-the-clock environment of engagement and, and you know, excitement about what was going on in the world. That was it. I, li I literally changed my major the next day to journalism, uh, and that was 40 years ago. Never looked back. Well, there's an immediacy, too, in journalism. There's not the... You don't have the luxury. I've been working on a novel for 12 years. You don't have that luxury in journalism because even with my book, I'm discovering that the world has changed way too fast and far beyond where my story took place. Uh, I, so, so taking journalism and, and finding a career with it, it's one thing to study. How did you go about finding the career and launching that as a career? You know, there used to be a fairly predictable sequence of events that would happen in a journalist's life. You know, you would get out of college with your, you know, shiny new journalism degree, and you would go to work for a small paper, and you would make $150 a week, and you would cover city council meetings and sewer board meetings and so forth. And then maybe a year or two down the road, you would move to a slightly bigger paper, bigger market. And then, you know, there were, at, at the end of that, Line supposedly there were these destination papers, you know the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, the uh, you know Wall Street Journal, whatever your interests were, and um, I followed a fairly predictable path that way, um, with the exception of at some point along that route I decided that you know the kind of writing I liked to do really was more long form journalism, and magazines were more suited to that than newspapers. But I, I got lucky. Um, I, I was working for a magazine, at the, the old Sunday magazine of the Pittsburgh Press, uh, and I got a job offer at the Orange County Register. And it was interesting to me. I thought, I, you know, I'd love to go out west. I've never been west of the Mississippi and find out what that's all about. Um, but I was also, I didn't have to leave. I had a good job, one that I wanted. And um, so I, I got to be coy and play hard to get, you know, during that job interview process. And the longer it stretched out, the better the job got. Um, and the job I ended up settling on was a job that it had no daily deadlines. It was, it was more like magazine writing within a newspaper. It had no daily deadlines, you know, week to three week deadlines for the kinds of stories that I could go out and find. As long as they had something to do with Orange County, California, I could usually convince my editors that you know, this has an Orange County hook to it. You know, OC man, he may be in Nevada, but he was born in Garden Grove. <laughs> um, and back then, newspapers had the resources to indulge those, those things. Um, you know, I wish they still did. But for at least the first year or two after I got out here, I had the dream job. I could go out and find great stories, figure out what the Orange County angle was on it, and, and convince my editors to fund it. Um, those were, you know, looking back now, we know those were the golden days of newspapers. We understand that newspapers no longer have those kind of resources, but um, I was the lucky beneficiary of a time when they did. These like uh, people of interest stories, and yep. now that there's a there's a challenge in in thinking about that now in this era. I could go online and uh, research things or people in Orange County who might be interesting or find a story. Uh, but back then, how would, you, how would you go about finding your stories? 
You know, I, I, I'm a newspaper reader as well as a newspaper reporter back then, and um, I think if you read the newspapers or, or scan the, whatever headlines, however you scan them, looking for those moments of potential, uh, and I'll give you an example from the book. There's a profile in uh, the book, Mr. Las Vegas Has a Bad Knee, of a guy here in Orange County named Dick Dale, who some of you may know, um, is known as the king of the surf guitar. He was sort of the Elvis of Southern California in the early 1960s. Um, that entire story, and I've written multiple stories about Dick Dale over the years. One of them uh, appears in the book, but that started with a, a small squib in the newspaper, just a, a little one-line court item that said, you know, Dick Dale, uh, king of the surf guitar, uh, has a hearing in Orange County Superior Court today to determine uh, whether he's going to be able to keep his house or not. Um, uh, you know, I thought, okay, you know, just on the surface of that, with one paragraph, you know, it looks like a rock star at the end of his rocket ride. You know, this has great potential to be a, a terrific story. Uh, so I went over to the hearing, and I, you know, it turns out it was me and Dick Dale and his girlfriend, you know, in front of the judge. Um, at the end of that hearing, it turns out this was the last of a series of bankruptcy hearings, and the judge said, you got 24 hours to get out of your house. You know, the sheriff will be there at 7 o'clock tomorrow morning. Go, you know. And out in the hallway, Dick Dale, king of the surf guitar, turns to me and says, what are you doing this afternoon? I'm going to need some help. And I said, I, I'll do that, but I'm, I'm going to write about it. And he said, that's okay. Come on. You know, and, um, you know, one thing led to another. And I ended up writing a story, uh, again, from that one-line court thing. Um, I was there at the sort of nadir of his career. You know, he's getting thrown out of his house. Um, it was the, the sort of end point of this avalanche of bad choices that he made over the years, and I could go into any number of those. There were dozens of them. Um, but he ended up, you know, you know, and he literally moved out of that house into his Winnebago and parked it in his parents' Garden Grove driveway for the year after that. Um, but what struck me during that whole period, and I, and I, you know, I chronicled his last worst day in that house, was his resilience. He kept saying, you know what? I can survive this. You know, I can rebuild. I can start over. And I just thought, what kind of strength does it take to, at that moment to be able to say, you know, I can fix this. Sure. And then over the next year, I watched him do that. Within eight months, he had won his first ever Grammy Award for a duet with Stevie Ray, Stevie Ray Vaughan. Two years after that moment, uh, his classic song, Miserloo, is used as the opening salvo of Pulp Fiction, you know, and suddenly Dick Dale is bigger than he's ever been in his life. And, you know, within a year after that, he was the biggest act on the college circuit, and he literally rebuilt from nothing. And, and having been able to witness that, you know, at the, at the very bottom of that curve, I came back in 2005, and I wrote the resurrection story, which is the one I really wanted to write. And that's, because that's what's in the book. That's what's yeah. in the book, is, is how he did that uh, and, and just you know, the type of personality it takes to be able to do that. Um, but again, that starts... All off of a little blurb. Yeah. Were, were there ever, are there moments where the inspiration doesn't come and you're, the fear kicks in of, well, what am I going to write about? You know, I, I do think that's a function of, of confidence for any writer. 
Um, I think those things go off the rails all the time, and and you have a choice. You can, you know, do nothing, not write the story. The story is dead, or you can write the story that the universe has given you. Uh, and the title essay of this this collection, Mr. Las Vegas Has a Bad Knee, is a perfect example of that. This was. I was working at the Los Angeles Times Magazine at the time, um, and Wayne Newton's people called, uh, Mr. Las Vegas, you know, and they wanted, hey, would you like Wayne to give you a, uh, a tour of historic Las Vegas? And I'm thinking, yeah, Mr. Las Vegas, you know, tour of historic Las Vegas, how good can that be? That's cool. You know, we signed on, and well, apparently his people didn't really clear that with Wayne. They just thought this was a great idea. You know, and, and so, you know, I should have known as I tried to set up the interviews, it was hard to get a hold of Wayne to talk about this. And finally we did, we got a, yeah, and he said, oh yeah, I can show you all around, I, you know, the old, you know, Sands Hotel, it's not there anymore, but the, the tunnels that Howard Hughes built, you know, might be there. And, you know, he, you know and, and I said, okay, where would you stay in historic Las Vegas? If I were coming over there, what would you recommend? Oh, stay at the frontier, you know? Well, at one time, the Frontier Hotel was, you know, the bee's knees of Las Vegas. By the time I got there, they, were, they had bikini mud wrestling in the lobby and, you know, 24-hour porn channels and, you know, but, you know, okay. So I got to Las Vegas. We finally scheduled a date to, to go uh, to, to interview and take the tour. And I'm literally standing at the front check-in counter of the Frontier Hotel which is like the checkout line at Costco at that point. And, um, and the phone rings, and it's Wayne, Wayne's people saying, oh, Wayne blew out his knee last night. He can't, he can't be there. So we had spent months arranging this historic tour of historic Las Vegas, and it all goes off the rails. And, and so at that point, you can say, okay, story didn't work out. Nothing left to say here. Or you can write about you know what That's it's like. What it's like to try and interview the Las Vegas legend late in his career at a time when things aren't going particularly well for him. Yeah, I, I love how you reference the uh, uh, Gay Talese, uh, uh Frank Sinatra has a cold. Right. And pretty similar to the to the title too. And that was the blueprint for yeah. it. I mean, there, the Gay Talese back in the 1960s. I think it was 1966. Wrote a piece in Esquire called Frank Sinatra Has a Cold. And it was, a, it was one of the great breakthrough personality profiles in magazine journalism. Um, again, he had arranged to, to interview Frank. He kept, you know, he, he got as far as Frank's entourage, but every time he tried to schedule the interview with Frank, oh, Frank's got a cold, can't talk to you today. And so it's, it was, a, it was a, a master class by a journalist in how to write a pro profile of a subject without ever actually getting access to that subject. He had to work the perimeter that whole time. And um, that seemed to be exactly what I was going through. And, and that became ultimately the title of the uh, essay and the title of the book. What's, it, it, there's something else too, you captured in that, that essay and I sensed it through a lot of the others. There's a, a sense of things disappearing. You talk about how the Vegas that, that Wayne Newton knew and would be able to give you the tour of doesn't necessarily exist anymore. And there's a lot of that in you, the, the essay about the dinosaurs and the, uh, the uh, essay about uh, uh, even Dick Dale and, and the 
career fading. And I feel like California kind of has, and I was going to save this for later, but since we're talking about the, the Wayne Newton, uh, California has this feeling. And we're here in the, in the heart of uh, Old Town Orange, right, which has a very uh, classic and, and historic feel to it. But slowly but surely, it, it, it's disappearing. And you don't necessarily, maybe you see that in the rest of the world. Maybe I'm just like floating in my own thoughts with this. But I feel like California, because it's such a young state, its history isn't that old and it's easily reinvented. Right. I, I first moved to LA uh, in, back in 2002, 2001, and I lived near the tail of the pup hot dog stand, which has been classically noted in all different movies and, and television shows. And two years after I moved, they, they destroyed it and tore it down, and it's a bank now. And you see that time and time again, and there is that element. And I wonder if that's something that you were conscious of as you were putting these pieces together, that there is, there is a, a thing of, of the fading history. That, that idea that permanence here is illusion. You yeah. know, it, it's, and I think that's what appealed to me about there's an essay in the book about the Seabreeze Pet Cemetery in Huntington Beach. Um, if you drive down Beach Boulevard, it's, it's a nondescript sign, um, you know, a little blue sign off to one side of the road, um, and it says Seabreeze Pet Cemetery. And I think that's what intrigued me about that place, is that here's this, you know, there's this one business in Orange County that's been there since the Kennedy administration that's going to be there for the foreseeable future because it's got 15,000 little anchors, you know, all these, these late pets, you know, that are, that are sunk into the ground there that, you know, should somebody decide, oh, we want to develop a hotel on top of that, yeah, no, there's going to be an outraged citizenry, you know, the people who bring chew toys down to their pet's grave every month. And um, that intrigued me about that, the fact that there are these little permanent places but they're very odd, you know. They're, they, you know, the, you know. I, when I came to work here, the Orange County Register was based in a one-level building with the printing plant on the back. Within two years, they had built this fancy schmancy orange building, orange and turquoise building at the intersection of the the, the five there, right along the five, um, and that was the new building. Well, guess what? They've moved out of the new building, and they're going to tear that down, I think, right, and turn it into something else. Um, that was only. 30 years ago, um, you know, that, that place flared into being for a while and then it's gone. And, and I just think that that's kind of startling, particularly for somebody like me who moved here from the East Coast where there, there are buildings built in the 1700s right. that are still around. And we, we don't get that kind of history. And that, that history that we do have, and maybe it's because it was developed in the 50s or the 60s and it just doesn't, or the 70s, it doesn't withstand time. It, you know, the sense of uh, uh, aesthetic is unappealing. You know, I don't know. I, I don't know what it is, but I do, I get that. I get that, and, you know, being a native Californian, I see it a lot. Um, I, I'd also like to talk, let's continue talking about the book. Um, I think it's a great story of why you chose to make this and release it. And I'd love for you to, to talk a little bit about what this book symbolizes for you and your family. Well, you know, I, my initial thought <clears throat> in putting this collection together was, you know, I, I am, I'm, I'm a pathetic dad who is constantly trying to impress my children somehow. Um, 
and I, I, you know, they've never read anything I've written, I, as far as I know, and they've never paid much attention <laughs> to what I do for a living. And, um, and so I thought, well, I'll put together, a, you know, I'll make it easy for them. I'll put together a collection of kind of dad's best of, you know. <laughs> greatest hits. Dad's yeah. greatest hits. Um, <laughs> and I started, you know, that's the idea I started with. I just want to put together some of the stories I've written over the years that I think are interesting. And, you know, being an editor, my mind immediately goes, okay, how do I organize this? What's the organizing principle for this collection of stories? And, you know, it, it struck me very quickly into that process that, that the way to organize it was to look at the southwest of the United States as sort of a universe unto itself, you know, peopled by people that are unlike any I've ever met anywhere else in the world. Um, and, and, you know, the, the metaphor I use in the introduction of the book um, is, is a writer long ago said, you know, it's, the Southwest is like somebody picked up the United States by the East Coast and shook it. And everything that was unstable or not nailed down or willing to let go just sort of slid into the Southwest. And, you know, you look around. I mean, there are a lot of refugees here, a lot of immigrants, a lot of people who fled bad marriages to come here to find a better life, you know, all kinds of people. Those are a certain type of personality. They are people who are willing to take risks. And to me, it was palpable when I got here. Um, in the newsroom at the Register, some of the, my colleagues from the Register are here tonight. Um, you know, I, I worked at the Pittsburgh Press for seven years. I never knew anybody that wrote a book. But within a couple of years of working at the Register, you know, the guy that sat next to me for a while, Robert Ferrigno, gets a huge book contract, his first novel. And Ed Humes wins a Pulitzer Prize and goes off and starts his career writing books. You know, things, people were taking risks. People were accomplishing amazing things. And I, I saw that as part of this continuum. You know, the kind of people that end up here are the kind of people who do that kind of stuff. Um, that appealed to me a great deal and it inspired me a great deal. Uh, I give credit to both of those guys for, you know, convincing me, well, if, if they can do this, I could probably do this, let me try. Um, being around people like that it helped me enormously. Um, and, and I, you know, I, many of the, the profiles I chose in here to, to feature are, are exactly people like that. Um, I'm thinking right now of Lynn Cox, who is a um, uh, cold water marathon swimmer that some of you may or may not have heard of. Um, you know, she discovered in high school, she was a, a long distance swimmer, but she also discovered her capacity in high school to endure very cold water for very long periods of time. The reason she can do that is that she's physiologically different from virtually everybody in this room and probably most people on this planet. If I get fat, I get fat right here and you know it clumps. When Lynn's fat is spread equally, you know, like a wetsuit under her skin, goes all the way down to her wrists and ankles. So she's insulated in a way that most people are not. And so when she was 15, she set the record for swimming the Catalina Channel. And then, I think she said it twice, actually. Um, then she went off and at age 17, I think, and swam the English Channel and set the record for that. Somebody broke it the following year. She went back and broke the record again um, and broke the men's record while she was at it. <laughs> um, just, you know, it's this extraordinary athlete who by the age of 20 had kind of done everything a marathon swimmer can do. Um, and, but because she recognized her unique abilities, 
she decided she was going to start doing cold water marathon swims. In 1987, she swam the Bering Strait between Alaska and the Soviet Union. There are two islands in the, in the Bering Strait. The international dateline runs right between them. Um, she swam two miles from one to the other in 37 degree water. Now, you know, if I get into water then it's like less than 75, uh, you know, I'm, I'm dying. Um, she did that without a wetsuit, you know, to prove that how close those two countries were. And this was, again, at the, the tail end of detente, you know, with the whole, you know, Gorbachev era where the United States and the Soviet Union were starting to notice each other again. Um, she did that to prove a point. Look how close our two countries are. I swam from one to the other. Um, that's the kind of athlete that, it, that it interests me. And, um, you know, again, she was one of those people that just sort of took risks here that I don't think anybody ever imagined taking, but she did. What, what other aspects of these stories went into your curation process in, in choosing them to be in the book? Well, I wanted a mix of people and peculiarities and what else, is, what else does the, the headline say? People, places, and peculiarities. Um, I, I wanted a mix of things. I, I didn't want it to be all people. Um, so in choosing people, I, choose po I chose people like Lynn Cox or Dick Dale, people who I thought, whose stories said something about the Southwest. Um, the peculiarities were pretty fun to, to kind of sift through. Like the uh, Mickey Mark. Yeah, the Mark of Mickey, great example. Um, so years ago, Disneyland was not, the, not quite the corporate monolith that it is today. Uh, it used to be that you could actually write stories about Disney without getting a cease and desist letter or, you know, getting a call from their lawyer. You know, you could actually write stories about them. And I, I knew a publicist over, publicist over at Disneyland named Diane Turner, who we were talking one day on the phone and she says, you know, I've got this file of people send me these pictures of, you know, their cow with Mickey Mouse's silhouette on the side of, in the fur or a tomato from their garden that looks like Mickey Mouse. And, you know, I, again, you know, where do these stories start? Can I come over and look at that file? <laughs> you know, and you get this, you know, she did. She let me come over and paw through this file of photographs that people had sent her from all over the world. Here's a birthmark on my baby's butt, you know. <laughs> it looks like Mickey Mouse. And, and how odd is that? And um, so I wanted to have plenty of peculiarities in there as well. Um, yeah, so I, you know, the places I did a, I, you know, I did a piece about uh, the Condor Recovery Program, um, which was in the late 80s up in Ventura County. Um, you know, again, you always try to find, you know, people at a crossroads or programs at a crossroads where it may not be the high point of their life or the low point, but it's, it's a moment when they have to make a choice. And the moment that I got involved with the Condor Recovery Program was I followed them as they were getting ready to take the last breeding female condor out of the wild into this captive recovery program. Um, that's the moment you want to get involved because this is a threshold moment for that program. This is a species that's dying. It was down to, I think there were 12 left in the wild and they were going to take the last breeding female out of the wild into this, this program. 
uh, I wanted to be there for that. I thought that would be a great moment. And it ended up being, I mean, it's a great success story. You know, there are condors, you can't, you trip over them now. There's condors everywhere. But, you know, taking AC3, which was the name of this particular condor, Adult Condor 3, uh, taking her out of the wild and putting her into that program. She ended up dying, but her offspring are still out there flying around now. And, and the species is, is fully recovered. And I don't know that it's off the endangered species list, but, but very close to it. But again, catching those scientists in that program at that particular moment, I thought was important. And what was the process of uh, organization, of placing stories uh, where they are in the book? Was there, what was that work like, or was it, did it just fall into place? You know, I, I think, I wanted to mix it up. I didn't want it to be people, 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 and then a section on places, and then right. a section. Right, and here's a peculiar. I wanted yeah. to mix them up a little bit. Um, the only one I consciously placed was an essay um, uh, at the very end about place. About, it's about a house that my family lived in for 15 years. Uh, my wife was, uh, was a city manager, and then she got this house as part of her job, and it was a house, I'd never even been in a house like this before we moved in. It, it sat, for various reasons, the city ended up owning this house, but it, it had sat on a bluff overlooking Santa Monica Bay. You know, you, you, you know, I'd never, like I said, I'd never even been in a house with a view like that. And we had the opportunity to live in this house for 15 years, and we raised our kids there, and they went to high school there. Um, that was the only one I consciously placed at the very end because I wanted the last essay to be about place because the entire book really is about it. And I wanted to write, I wanted to put it there because the, the subtext of that story is about gratitude. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, and, and appreciating where you are and understanding where you are and, and um, making the most of every day when you're in a place like that. And I wanted that gratitude thing to be at the end of it. Everything else just sort of fell naturally into um, what made sense to me anyway. Um, the, you mentioned earlier the dinosaur essay. The Cavazon, yeah. Uh, Cavazon. So everybody here has been to Palm Springs, I assume. Um, uh, when you drive out toward Palm Springs at the Cabazon exit, there are these two dinosaurs, giant 150-ton, steel-reinforced concrete dinosaurs. And I, you know, I actually noticed them for the first time when I moved out here. I was on my way to cover the Liberace Death Watch, which is another story. Um, uh, and I, that's the first time I'd ever been out that road. And I drove by and I noticed these dinosaurs and immediately you know, the light bulb goes on. It's like, how did they get there? You know, and why? What are those doing there? And so I got back to the office after the Liberace Death Watch and filed that story. Um, and I tracked down the guy who built the dinosaurs, a guy named Claude Bell, who, um, you know, at the time he was 91 years old. He lived in a trailer out behind the dinosaurs. Um, I called his wife and she said, you know, you can come out and talk to him, but he's not well, you know, I don't know how much he'll be able to talk to you, but come on out. So I got on my motorcycle and I rode out there and, and um, Claude Bell hosted me for the afternoon. Um, well, again, if you ask the right questions, if, if you let curiosity be your guide into the center of all these stories, you know, you ask the right questions, those stories just unfold in front of you. Claude Bell grew up in Atlantic City, New Jersey. The job that he had as a teenager and early adulthood 
was a sand sculptor. He would make these, you know, sort of elaborate sand sculptures for people in the sand in Atlantic City and would, um, at the end of the day, you know, they would tear it down and he would start all, all over the next day. He ended up making a career of that, if you can imagine. He actually got a job at Knott's Berry Farm. He worked there for 30 years as a sand sculptor. He, he did sand sculptures all day. People would walk by, watch him do it. At the end of the day, they would level it. And, and at some point, he decided, I'm going to build something they're not going to knock down the next day. And he bought 60 acres of land out. There was scrub land out in the desert and decided he was going to build his dinosaurs out there. Um, and, you know, he spent, I mean, he was only, he was in his 60s when he started them. Um, it took him years. You know, if you, there's a photo in the book of Dinny, which is the Apatosaurus, which, you know, the steel reinforcing on this thing is just incredible. Right, you wrote that there was, there used to be a gift shop inside? Yes, yeah, he, he no built a, a gift shop in the belly of the Apatosaurus. And then there was Rex, which was the Tyrannosaurus Rex, which was featured in Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Um, or version of it anyway. So he got these two things built and he charged, I think it was 50 cents for adults and 25% cents, you know, nothing. He put $300,000 into building these things. And just the idea that he wanted to create something that was permanent and that was gonna last. Again, getting back to the idea of Southern California, you know, permanence is illusion. It doesn't, it doesn't last particularly long. Those things are gonna be there for 500 years. Um, it also gave me the chance to write about, you know, growth as well. Um, if you drive by those dinosaurs now, there's a pretty good chance you're not even going to notice them. And the reason is there's a Burger King in front of them, and there's a gas station that went up, and um, there's the Morongo, the, casino, the Morongo yeah. casino. It's just a 27-story casino just down the road from it. The outlet malls. Um, it's hard to notice them anymore, but they're still there. You know, the best way to see them now is in satellite photographs, actually. Um, but I wanted to write about, you know, okay, this guy made it. You know, we all come here trying to make a mark of some kind, and here's how he made his. So. Now, I want to go back to, you were talking about your uh, coworkers and uh, the careers that they were able to launch. And I want to know what the inspiration to go from journalism to writing your first fiction novel was? Um, you know, boredom is a great sure. thing. You know, I, <laughs> I, was, I was 15 years into a career as a journalist, which I absolutely loved, um, but it didn't scratch all my itches. There was something in me that wanted to try something different, you know, exercise a different set of muscles. And our daughter, we lived in an 800 square foot house at the time in Long Beach, and our daughter had just been born, and I could have stayed up late at night watching TV, but that would have kept everyone in my house awake. Typing was quieter, um, and so I enrolled in a fiction class at uh, UC Irvine, an extension class, because uh, I'd never written fiction before, and it was a short story class, and um, so I, I tried my hand at it, you know, and um, writers, we're all delusional, right? We, you know, we, it doesn't take much to make us feel like we're really important, so, um, you know, I wrote this atrocious short story, and I turned it in, and we workshopped it, and, you know, the general feedback from the very kind lecturer, moderator, was, you know, this doesn't feel like a short story. It, it feels bigger than that. It feels like, you know, and what she was saying was, this doesn't work as a short story at all. <laughs> you know, it, it's terrible. 
what I was hearing was, she thinks this short story is bigger than a short story. <laughs> it could be a novel, oh my God. And so I set off you know, for two years turning that atrocious short story into an atrocious novel and, uh, and succeeded. Um, uh, but by then I had convinced myself, you know, my destiny is to be a novelist now. I have to go do that. And so that novel still sits in a drawer. It's, it's never going to appear. Um, but, you know, by then I had proven that I could write a novel. Not a good one, but a, a novel. Um, and I'd kind of picked up a few skills along the way. How to write dialogue and how to create memorable characters and how to pace a story over, you know, three or four hundred pages. Um, and it, um, I, I, again, I, I deluded myself into thinking, okay, I'm now, now I'm a novelist. And I, then I started writing things that had a little bit more chance of success in the marketplace. Um, at the time, suspense thrillers were selling really well. Uh, and I thought, well, my first experience was not a good one. It didn't sell. Um, let me write something that's got a better chance of selling. And I had an idea that fit very neatly into the idea of a suspense thriller. Uh, and that's, that's what I wrote. That became my first published book, Time Release. Um, it then became a series of books, uh, four books, um, all featuring well, the same main character. Um, and, you know, there used to be, I had, I had the benefit of my boss at the magazine. I, I worked at Orange Coast Magazine twice, once back in the, the, the mid-90s and once for the past nine years. Um, in that first go-round, my boss at the time, when she found out I had a, a contract for a novel, she goes, oh, you know, you should talk to Dean Koontz. And I was like, yeah, oh, yeah, Dean, I'll just call Dean. You <laughs> yeah, know? my buddy, right. My yeah. buddy. <laughs> and she goes, oh, I'll have him call you. And literally the next day, the, the phone rings, and it's Dean Koontz. Um, he goes, you want to go to lunch? And I said, yeah. Um, you know, first question, Dean, how do I get from where I am to where yeah, you are? Right. You know, how do I climb the pyramid? Um, and he said, he, you know, Dean Koontz is a very smart guy. I don't, I've only read a couple of his books, so I can't say whether he's a good writer or not. I do know he's a really smart businessman. And he was very straight with me. He said, and this was in 1996, he said, figure you got five books to get from where you are to where I am, or at least approaching that. You know, the first book is going to be your, you know, sometime in those first five books, you've got to write what's called a breakthrough book got to pop onto the bestseller list. People have to talk about it. If you get to five books and you have not written a breakthrough book yet, you need to change your strategy. You need to write under a different name or you need to write a different kind of book or, well, that, you know, okay, now I have my roadmap. I, I have five books. I've got to get out there and, and see how this goes. Well, by the time my first book came out, that window had shrunk to three books. Publishers were willing to give you three books to get a breakthrough book. And if not, then time to change your strategy. You know, I wrote three books. They all did, critically, they did great. Um, I was really happy with them, but they never became breakthrough books. I mean, there are a lot of books published every year. The chances of that happening are, are pretty remote for any of us. Um, so I got to the end of three books, and I had gotten to know a gentleman named Michael Connolly, who many of you probably know. He's a crime novelist, one of the best. Um, and I had the same conversation with Michael, you know, at, at an airport in Pittsburgh, of all places, after an event. Um, I said, you know, I, I don't know that I'm going to get a fourth book contract. Um, you know, got any ideas? He goes, try nonfiction. You know, you're a journalist, try. 
And so I, you know, I decided, yeah, that's probably a smart thing to do. And I wrote two nonfiction, co-wrote two nonfiction books after that, took a break from the fiction and uh, started flipping back and forth between the two. And I, I, that's what I'm still doing. Now talk a little bit about the process of writing fiction in comparison to the process of writing nonfiction in comparison to the process of your journalistic work. I find fiction to be heavy lifting and hard, um, as I'm, I'm sure you do too. It's you're creating it, you're not chronicling it. Um, you know, you know, journalism requires curiosity and powers of observation and powers of interpretation and empathy and you know things that I I had gotten pretty good at over the course of a career. Fiction requires a whole different set of skills. You know, you've got to create characters that are properly motivated. Sound familiar? Yeah, one of my students is here. Um, <laughs> you, know, you know, properly motivated uh, characters, and you've got to pace it. You know, you've got to structure it and pace it. Um, you've got to make sure there's no contradictions in that character, and if they are contradictions, you've got to make them really interesting um, and, and, and well-motivated. Um, you know, that to me is the act of creation, not the act of chronicling. Right. And that to me is, is not natural. That to me is a, um, that's heavy lifting. So. Now, what about journalism uh, aided your fiction work? You know, I, we've talked about this in class the other day, about, um, you know, we were talking about research. You know, people are writing scenes that they need to know what the inside of an Alzheimer's facility looks like, or they need to know what the inside of a morgue looks like. Um, and you know, to me, picking up the phone and imposing on somebody is just second nature. I'm a journalist, right? So you know, calling the morgue and saying, you know what, I'm a novelist, I'm writing this, this story. Um, I would love to come over and watch what you do for a couple of afternoons. I'm not gonna write a story in the paper about it, I just, I need to know. Um, you know, that's second nature to a journalist, picking up the phone and going over and, and inviting yourself into someone's life and recognizing that people love to talk about what they do and who they are. They're not going to tell you no if you're sincerely interested in what they do and you want to know how they do what they do and why they do what they do. Um, to me, I, my imagination is not good enough to come up with the details that I can pick up in an afternoon at the morgue. The, the example I used in class, the spider plants. So I'm, you know, I'm at the morgue in Pittsburgh. I invite, I invite myself into all kinds of morgues. Um, and I was at the morgue in Pittsburgh, which is this wonderful sort of Gothic architecture. It looks like a morgue should look. You know, it looks like something out of a Dracula movie. And you know, the details that you pick up while you're there, to me, are what brings the fiction to life. For example, you know, who knew, but if you go to the morgue, they have wind, there was no central air conditioning in this morgue. It was built in the 1800s. Um, and so they all, all the offices have window air conditioners. In the, in the summer, the condensation seeps down the walls. You know, that's what a morgue should look like, right? You know, this gooey place. Um, <laughs> and, you know, once you're in where they do the autopsy room and you notice that, you know, oh my gosh, there's all these spider plants hanging around here. What's that about? And you ask somebody and they tell you, well, in fact, spider plants thrive on the fumes of formalin, you know, with formaldehyde. Um, 
it's good for the plants. The plants absorb it. It smells less like formaldehyde in here. It's, well, that's a cool detail to throw <laughs> into a, a morgue scene. You know, you're not going to see that on CSI. Um, you, what you see are backlit, dramatic people. You know, what, what really happens is you've got a bunch of bureaucrats kvetching about pay raises and vacation time and the bosses at the county, you know, don't, don't respect us. And that's what a real autopsy is like, you know, while they're doing their work. Um, you pick up details, the striker saw, you know, that's the saw they use to cut the top off the head to remove the brain. You know, how would I have ever known that or, or imagined that? Um, so that, to me, you know, that's how journalism informs the fiction. It, it, it you know, it, it never occurred to me that it's not my place to call a morgue and invite myself in, so. Uh, I'd love to know how the other hyphen in your career line as an editor informs your work as well. And the fact that you get to see all these, I guess as a teacher as well, you get to see all these other people's work and kind of pick it apart and dissect it and find out what works and what doesn't and how that changes the way that you approach a piece. You know, I, you know, editors have to be, I, I, I don't know, I think editors and writers are of the same ilk, you know, in that they have to organize their thoughts quickly, structure things in a way that, that makes sense. Um, editor, being an editor, I think, is sort of a super organizer kind of role. Um, you know, it, it, you know, you, you look at, one of the things that I, I, sorry if I'm repeating so much from our class, but <laughs> one of the things that, that I often emphasize is, you know, ask yourself the question, what's the best particular way to tell this particular story? You know, and in my case, it's either fiction or nonfiction. How do I approach that story? But, you know, looking at the material and deciding, okay, this is a story. What's the best way to tell that story? I think that's an editor's function. That's where you, you know, as a writer, you're just ready to blurt it out and start, start telling it like you were telling it to somebody in a bar. An editor has to step back and say, okay, let's think about this, particularly at a magazine. You know, this has to work graphically as well. You know, are we dealing with photographs or illustrations, typography? How do we want this to sit on a page and, and you know, strike people? What's the first impression we want to make with this? It's storytelling in multiple dimensions. Um, that appeals to me. Um, when it, you know, when it's my own writing, I, I have no idea whether, you know, I, I'm as critical of myself as, as I am of other people, but I, um, I try to apply the, the things that I teach to my own stuff as well and see if it passes that test, you know. Uh, again, I need an editor. Everybody needs an editor. Um, and I've been, been fortunate enough to have a number of really good editors, book editors over the years. Uh, I'd love to talk a little bit about the future, and I'm just curious, especially after reading these these stories, do you have any interest in compiling uh, uh, another book, but new, of continuing this journey and this, this exploration of the Southwest? Um, probably not the Southwest. You know, it, again, I, you know, one of the things I or I, California, and more specifically, or well, I live in Colorado now. Okay, and and you know, again, my my life has sort of fallen into. I, I I'm living the three act structure that I teach. You know, my first 29 years were spent in Pennsylvania, um, 
My second 30 years were spent in California. We moved to Colorado two years ago in what I imagined was the start of the third act of my life. My wife says, the final act, you know, okay, <laughs> maybe. Um, so, you know, I find myself writing the stories that I'm surrounded by up there. Um, I just wrote one. I've been, anybody who's Facebook friends with me knows that I write obsessively about our dog. Um, and, but it's, a, it's, the, it's the story of this dog that went from being a city dog raised in the city to being transported to a different planet where he's now got moose and fox and you know all these things to deal with. Porcupines, we had a little interesting porcupine episode. Um, you know, so you know, he's much more interesting to write about than we are. You know, so I've been writing about his transition from the city to the country. And um, I'm, I was a big fan of E.B. White's. E.B. White was a writer, you know him from Charlotte's Web. He wrote Charlotte's Web. But Charlotte's Web was the result of a move he made about 10 years before he wrote it. 10 years before he wrote it, he was a writer for The New Yorker, staff writer, um, who had an opportunity to buy a, I, believe, I think it was a sheep farm in Maine, move out of Manhattan to Maine, and The New Yorker said, we'd like you to still write, you know. So he started writing about his reality at that time. So he, he compiled that into all those essays about moving to the country and living in the country and dealing with things in the country into a collection called One Man's Meat, which is still in print after all these years. Um, it was a remarkable collection of a human being who makes a conscious choice. No, I'm going to simplify my life and I'm gonna transplant it somewhere else. And that's essentially what we've done. Uh, and so I'm writing, I just wrote a piece about Scotty's, our dog's transition, uh, which is ongoing. Um, uh, it appeared in a magazine in Denver and they've now asked me to write essays quarterly, so that gives me a perfect excuse. I'm, I'm now thinking about writing about buying a cowboy hat, the sort, of, the sort of existential dilemma of, you know, how much of a poser do you want to be? My wife said no, but I bought it anyway, and I wear it to walk the dog and just piss her off mostly. So, um, uh, so you know, I'm, I'm writing about where I am now, and I'm, I'm planning to be there for the foreseeable future. And that's probably how that'll take shape. I, I do think there's, I hate to use the word memoir, you know, because I, I just don't feel qualified to write a memoir. But if I collect enough of those essays into something, it almost becomes a memoir. And, I, and the through line I want to use for it is moving from one end of the Colorado River to the other. We literally live a mile downstream from the dam where the Colorado River starts as a river. It flows, the edge of our property is the Colorado River. And having moved from Southern California, which is where most of the Colorado end, ends up, to that end of it, I think is the connective tissue that will let me hopefully knit all those together. So. Well, thank you everybody for uh, coming and listening to us talk. And Marty, thank you so much. It was a pleasure Thanks to talk to you, me. very entertaining. Uh, and uh, wonderful you. work, wonderful work. <laughs> This has been The How, The Why with John Barrett Ingalls. The show is produced by Kevin Stanick and yours truly with production assistance by Sarah Becker. The How, The Why theme music was composed and performed by Dan Record. Please.
please consider supporting 1888 and our mission. Become an 1888 advocate by purchasing our books, participating in our programs, and pledging today. For more information, visit 1888.center. That's 1888.center. I want to remind you all to keep making art. Thank you.